0: get started. It's been a couple weeks since I've uh, been here, so I'm happy to be back. And it's a particular pleasure to uh, welcome Dr. Gior Netzer here. Uh, You all know uh, Dr. Netzer, um, brilliant guy. A lot of us in the division often refer to uh, him as Wiki Netzer because of the breadth and depth of uh, understanding on so many medical topics he has. And when he uh, focuses on a particular topic, I know that it's... Uh, one that we need to take seriously. And this is uh, the issue of ficus, a, a term which he actually coined in the literature is one that is definitely one to be taken seriously and uh, worthy of our attention. So thank you, Dr. Thanks. All right, so thanks very much, Dr. McCurdy. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about families, which is always a sort of uncomfortable topic for a group of adult intensivists, uh, and certainly for me. Uh, so one first thing, no conflicts of interest. Uh, I think my endeavors are, are about my dedication to this, but don't think they cause a conflict. Uh, Want to talk about how we think about families in the ICU, first providing a historical context, and then taking a very pragmatic and clinical approach to why this actually matters to us as practitioners in the ICU. Not a philosophical or humanistic or highfalutin discussion, but a very, bare bones, here's why we actually need to wake up and think about this, uh, even though it wasn't our initial thought probably when we started critical care. So to do that, I'm gonna make a disclosure about the historical context and thinking about the way I approach things and the way I thought about things when I first started med school. Um, it's true, sorry. All right, so this, this is Mr. Netzer. Uh, he's gonna change the world, or not. But what was, what, was, uh, what was I taught in med school? Uh, don't give beta lockers to patients with heart failure. Uh, diabetics probably shouldn't get them either. Right? If you're gonna give one unit of red cells, you probably should give two, because you want to get that hemoglobin to stay above 10. Uh, and only pediatricians need to deal with families, and I don't want to deal with that, and I want to be an ICU doctor. So thinking about that, because I am not a pediatrician, it's probably worth thinking about the way things have changed in pediatrics. Uh, and again, this is the last, during the 20th century, if you were a kid in the hospital, um, you were there to get better. Ergo, you're in the ICU, you're in there to get better. So what do you need to get a kid better in the hospital? Well, they need, they need care and they need rest. And when family comes, when parents come, that messes it up, right? It disturbs the kid, uh, it riles them up, it makes things harder, so the way to do things is we're gonna only have parents around for one hour or maybe two hours a week, uh, and that should do it. Because we're here to take care of patients and families get in the way. So that's basically the way things work through most of the 20th century. And why did things work that way in pediatrics? Well, you know, it's good for patient care, it's the way we need to do it, and we've always done it that way and it seems to be working just fine. Um, That's not the way things work in pediatrics anymore. In fact, most of us probably can't imagine pediatrics being that way in the 21st century, especially if we've got children of our own. And this was actually my, my experience the summer before last where I had a pretty eye-opening moment of exposure with pediatric sepsis for my daughter who got sent home from summer, who got admitted from summer camp um, with sepsis from a pneumonia source. And when I got to her room at A.E. DuPont, um, that's what was set up for me. Yeah, there's the bed. We know you're, we know you're dead. We know you're gonna stay. Done. Right. So we should talk about family. So, In terms of discussing family, the first thing is just to define family. Defining family is a group of individuals uh, that may be related by blood or other relation or may be gathered together for any reason to care and to share each other's lives. It is an inclusive definition of family and the definition that Society of Critical Care Medicine uses. So one thing here is, again, I didn't want to deal with families because I want to be in the ICU. I want to talk about waveforms. I want to talk about hemodynamics. I want to talk about cool stuff. I don't wanna deal with parents and stuff like that. But unfortunately, one of the things we learn in the ICU pretty quickly is that for the majority of our seriously ill patients, especially for ones that are near the end of life, they're not making their own decisions. They have a family member or other loved one doing surrogate decision making. And in that sense, um, we're in this world now where we need to acknowledge the fact that we work with surrogate decision makers. It's a reality both on the ground and also professionally. We respect and realize that we're in a world of shared or collaborative decision-making. We're gonna be working with families to establish goals of care and plans of care. This is practice in the 21st century. I think one thing that we all need to take a step back and think about when we work with families is just how tough things are for them in the ICU. Being the family member, the loved one of someone in the ICU is difficult and being their decision maker even more so. They're stressed, anxious, depressed, and a large proportion of them have PTSD before they've even left the ICU, right? We've all had moments in family meetings where things seem to go off the, the tracks despite our best efforts. So one thing that's important, I think, is to realize that good communication matters. So we need to be doing a good job talking because when we don't, uh, we know that we lose, uh, we lose our therapeutic relationship with the family. Their loved ones may stay longer. They may take longer to make decisions about goals of care. Uh, they may be more likely to develop PTSD. And then when the families feel like we do a good job, greater confidence, greater satisfaction, may be able to make the difficult decisions ahead of them. So all of this is basically, traditionally we've thought about things in terms of us as a transmitter our job is to communicate. And if you read the literature, most of the literature is still about us. We're the transmitter. Here's how we need to communicate. Here's how we need to talk. I think all of us in this room have had the experience where we've worked very hard to communicate openly with a family, to spend the time needed, show the empathy, convey the facts, and we've done everything right. We've done everything the way we need to do it, and yet At that family meeting, which has now gone on for an hour and a half, nothing's happening. That's an incredibly frustrating experience. And what we need to realize is that it's a lot more than just about us as the transmitter. We need to be thinking about the receiver. We need to be thinking about the family members themselves and what's going on because this relationship and this milieu is a lot more complicated than just us doing a better job of talking. This goes across national lines. depending where you are, varies. So obviously it's going to be more severe in countries with very patriarchal ICU cultures like France. But if you look in the United States and Canada, there's a proportion of family members that simply either don't want to make decisions or don't want to be in any kind of active decision-making role. And that preference seems to correlate with anxiety and depression. So one thing here is, We've been thinking about transmitter, and most of us get trained in the way of the transmitter, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And this is one of the first trials to try to address this. This is a support trial. Support trial was early 90s, and basically said, let's figure out how much clinicians know about their patients and their end-of-life preferences, and let's see if we can improve the care. So how did we do in the early 90s? We did pretty badly. So less than a quarter of physicians actually knew what the code status of their patients was. There wasn't a lot of communication about goals of care and things were not great. So they, basically a nurse-led intervention was initiated. They enrolled thousands of patients, and so you've got some really good, really smart nurses now talking, sitting down, and communicating with families. What happens? Nothing, no improvement in anything, right? We're starting from a low baseline. So then the question is, well, you know what? That was the focus trial, that was the early 90s. You know, Things progressed a lot, and then we're getting a lot better at communicating, so let's do it again. Now there are a lot of single center pre-post trials that show improvement, but obviously those are limited. So what we wanna talk about is multi-center randomized clinical trials. So this is a study that was funded by National Institute of Nursing Research done by Randy Curtis, terrific investigator and group out of University of Washington. And what did they do? They did a multi-component intervention, soup to nuts. They worked on the entire quality of communication in the ICU through all levels of administration and clinical care, gonna make it all better all the way through, and what happened? Nothing. No improvement in anything. And I think very tellingly, they they couldn't get the families to even follow up. Sort of the response rate was so low, pointed towards the amount of PTSD and the amount of disengagement the families had when they got home. There's a more recent study by Randy Curtis using facilitators. Um, What's the result on that? Um, Pretty weak surrogate. I want to get excited. It's pretty difficult to. I think one of the problems is we keep talking about the transmitter Um, But we're working awfully hard and despite good efforts and good smart people. We're not getting very far So we need to start thinking about the receiver and that's what I want to get everyone thinking about today We want to think about the receiver and what happens in the families What's the internal dialogue and what's going on and how do we engage families? Not because we want to be altruistic and big and philosophical and metaphysical But because we need to provide care in the ICU We need to take good care of our patients and we can we're concerned about their long-term outcomes and this is basically a receiver operating curve, right, that compares the ability of good communication to discriminate for families understanding prognosis. Right? And one thing is, you can see the receiver op- the area under the curve here, right? 0.44, right? Receiver operating curve of a coin toss, 0.5. So really, the quality of our communication, in, as interpreted by the families, has nothing to do with their interpretation. Right? There's a lot more going on than just that. Right? So, what is going on? Why, why are there families who are not understanding and not grasping or not engaged with what we're telling them? Because we're sitting down now. We know we're doing all the things that SECM is telling us, that ATS is telling us. We're having a family meeting on day three. We're trying to engage communication. And a lot in a proportion of families, not all, but a proportion of families, what we want to have happen isn't happening. So there's probably a number of cognitive barriers that are occurring. One of these is, is anticipatory grief. Uh, this is a psychological construct. That's pretty much what it sounds like. My loved one's really sick. I can't believe they might die. I don't know what I'm gonna do if they die. This happens across a number of different populations. It's been best studied in people who are chronically ill. But whether you look at family members across a variety of situations, dementia, mom's taking care of, kids with cancer, other people with advanced illness, it's really clear that when people have anticipatory grief, and there is a very good validated instrument for this, they don't do problem solving as well as measured by instruments like the SPSI. They can't process, they can't do problem solving. This is a cognitive barrier. And think about how many of your patients are either dying or close to death, and you can see that there's probably a very significant proportion of your patients in the ICU that are experiencing anticipatory grief. So what are the other possible constructs and models? Cause we're not sure we're still in the early stages of thinking about this in terms of psychological barriers right? in the world of cognitive behavioral therapy. there's an idea of maladaptive reasoning. You're just not thinking about it correctly. You're not thinking it through properly. And there's a concept called learn helplessness it was set up by Seligman. And basically the idea is when construct, when confronted with events that are terrible and ongoing and inexorable, Uh, You have stress that you can't control, you don't know what to do with it. You become depressed, and then you disengage from decision making. And we've all had that experience, again, where we've had the family meetings, they won't make a decision. I don't know, doc, I, I can't decide. Or the family that just stopped showing up. So we thought, you know what, there might be a good proportion of family members that are suffering from learned helplessness. There's a very good validated instrument. Let's take a look in our ICUs across the University of Maryland. And we went to all ICUs, we were very lucky to have a lot of of great ICU directors across, SICU, trauma, CSICU who were enthusiastic. We went across all ICUs, 499 patients total, 499 surrogate decision makers total. And what we found was, it wasn't just that learned helplessness was common, the majority of decision makers actually were suffering from significant learned helplessness. And when you looked at this learned helplessness, it went across all ICUs, these patients families were also at high levels of stress by the perceived stress scale, and that their levels of stress also correlated with their degrees of learned helplessness. So we got interested, so what are all the things that are going on with these family members that they're not processing like we think they should process? I think we've all had the experience, we've walked past a waiting room, and what's, what's going on in the waiting room? There's people slumped over asleep, right? You walk past a room, there's a loved one who's asleep in the, in the reclining chair and said, you know, there are a number of studies that had indicated that patients reported subjective sleepiness. And we said, okay, well, we know they're sleepy, but just how sleepy are they? Let's actually quantify it. So we used a couple of scales. One was actually, how sleepy are they in terms of their impact on their quality of life? And what you could see was the functional outcome of sleep questionnaire is a lot of sleepy people and sleep decreased their quality of life. But our big question was, well, what does actually the sleepiness mean in terms of its impact on A, morbidity of being sleepy, and B, their their ability to make decisions. So you guys have probably all heard, if you've missed a night of sleep, it's as if you were drunk. And so in New Jersey, if you stay up all night and then you drive and you cause a collision, you can actually be charged with vehicular manslaughter. And this idea is is that sleep deprivation actually impacts reaction time, and reaction time is a component of executive functioning. So what we did is we did measured reaction time using something called psychomotor vigilance testing, and we also used the upward scale to assess how sleepy people felt. So we did about 240 family members, and what we found, over one half of family members are either excessively sleepy, sleep deprived to the point of being cognitively blunted as if they were drunk, or both. There's a whole dialogue going on with families when we're talking to them. We're thinking about our communication and what's going on, but more than, just the, more than just the things that are going on here with inability to process, I have maladaptive reasoning, it doesn't matter what I do, it's all gonna go bad, I'm too sleepy to think, right? Is There's an entire dialogue within the family. The patient's families know it, right? And we hear it. There are conflicts going on in the family and you hear these themes over and over again. I don't wanna be the one to pull the plug. What if my dad's gonna get better? And the one that te- speaks to interfamily family conflict, which is if I'm the one that, that gives up on dad, my brothers and sisters are never going to forgive me. Right? They're having this dialogue. They may or may not be sharing it with you, but it's a dialogue. The other thing to think about is when we process information, right, we're not all processing it like Mr. Spock. Right? We're not all ideal and perfect. In fact. What we really know about human behavior is that most human behavior is not always rational, right? So traditional economics is I make all decisions based on utility and value. What we know from behavioral economics is actually there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff that goes on in our brains that has nothing to do with that. This is a study that Doug White and his group did. And what they did, they went into an ICU, and they handed questionnaires of theoretical scenarios to family members of ICU patients. And they gave them different scenarios. So you can see up at the top, they gave really positive scenarios. He'll definitely survive. Okay, that, that sounds good, right? So people are like, yeah, well, you know what? He definitely survive. I would say that the median, median survival 90%. I like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at predicting when you tell me stuff like that. But take a look as the prognoses get worse. I'm giving you this hypothetical. The patient has a 5% chance of surviving. What's the chance of surviving? Yeah, so you can see here, right? Here's the median, right? Somewhere between 20 and 25%. If you look at the interquartile range, which is the shaded part, a quarter of them thought it would be over 40%. And at least one person thought it was a 95% chance of survival. The patient has a 5% chance of survival. Now, lest we think that this is a question of numbers and that most people aren't comfortable with numbers, this group did the same thing using subjective qualifiers. Very likely, Unlikely, very unlikely, same results. Right? What is this a reflection of? This is a reflection of something called the optimism bias. All of us have this. Why do restaurants keep getting opened? Because nobody thinks that their restaurant will be in the majority that gets closed, that gets shut down. Right? Teenage drivers. I'm a really good driver, I'm not like the other teenage drivers. Right? That's the optimism bias. That's what gets us up in the morning. It's part of what drives us as human beings, it's part of the innate biases. Another bias is framing bias, the way that information is presented to us changes the way that we choose. So in an ideal world, you present data to me, the data are the data, Well, that's the way it is. So this was an interesting study that was actually done by Amos Tversky, who's one of the two founding fathers of modern behavioral economics, and they basically handed surveys to a large group of people, including graduate students, people with chronic illness, and physicians. So we can compare our performance to other people, to lay people. And they presented therapies two different ways. By therapy A and B or alternate therapy or by surgery and radiation. And then they presented things by life expectancy or cumulative survival. Now all the numbers are basically the same, but the way you presented things changed things. If I told you an alternate therapy and here are the characteristics, you go, oh, I like that alternate therapy. If I tell you it's radiation, people went, oh, no, 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 I want that. The numbers are the same, the outcomes are the same. Right? Now, lest we think that we're somehow much smarter, physicians had the same issues. They made the same divergences in choice based on the framing of the scenarios as the graduate students and the chronically ill patients. So, we have a couple of things. So, there are huge variabilities in the way that the information gets presented in families, and also how we present the information, because they didn't think about it. We don't have a codified way of presenting prognosis and data, so the way we frame is going to create initial opportunity for cognitive bias, right? Same thing here, there's a whole internal dialogue that reflects a lot of these cognitive biases. You hear it over and over again, the family members know what's going on, and you can see that here. Look at all these things that reflect an optimism bias. I think he's kind of looking better today. Maybe he's a little less gray, right? Yeah, well, he's a fighter, right? Optimism bias, case rate fallacy, all these things, these all reflect an inability to reflect, to process data rationally, and instead to bring individual cognitive biases, right? We can change the prognosis. I got a good feeling, right? These are all things that are going through the family member heads, not because they're not smart, right, but because they're human beings. One thing about human beings is we all have these cognitive biases whether we're aware of them or not, with varying degrees of sophistication, but they're all endemic to us as a human species. Same thing here. The ICU is not a dispassionate place. When you're in a highly emotionally charged state, you are not cognitively processing anymore. You're also not able to make the same decisions that you would have made in a dispassionate state. And more than that, when you're in this highly charged, high affect state, you can't even remember what you would have done when you had a cooler head. People can't process, they're too overwhelmed emotionally. So we looked at all this, and this is work that I did with Don Sullivan, who's at OHSU, actually works with Chris Latour also, uh, and thought about, let's actually think about how this constellation of cognitive biases works in the ICU, and you can see it comes from all directions. There's the maladaptive reasoning, there's the family conflict, there's the standard encoding biases that we have as human beings anticipatory grief, sleep deprivation, all these things preclude the type of normal rational processing that we think is key to interpreting prognosis and making the kind of decisions that we think people should make. So again, the long-haired, finely-mained Guillory answer in 1996 is gonna say, okay, that's nice, but I told you, I don't wanna be a pediatrician, I'm not gonna deal with these families, you gave me a lot of doom and gloom here, and I don't even care right now. So I've tuned out. So why does it matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So the first one is we're all becoming acutely aware of of burnout. So we've all seen the recent ACCP, SCCM, and ATS position papers on burnout. (coughs) Excuse me. And one thing about that is we know it's bad. So the first thing is we actually need to recognize this, not even for the patients, but for ourselves. Because we know that when we have conflicts with the families, and this is across the interdisciplinary team, we're taking that home with us. That's bad. That's bad for us. And we'd like to be in this business for a while. Why else does it matter? It matters because we're here in the hospital to take care of the sickest patients. So in that sense, we're really responsible for hospital and the community itself. Anyone who's held a triage pager God bless us all who have. Know that we're going to get calls when the ICU is full, and more often than not, somebody in that ICU is going to be getting care that's unlikely to benefit him or her. And that means that the patient isn't coming from the ED. That's bad for patients in the ED. We know the patient's not coming from the floor. That worsens outcomes on the floor. And for those of us who are at tertiary care centers, it means that someone's not going to get here from another hospital who needs to get here. All these things worsen outcomes for patients in the hospital. They're the patients that we're here in critical care to serve, right? So there's a, that's the carrot, right? We wanna know and understand this because it does bad things. But I think there's also a great opportunity here. This is the thing that I'd like to tell that long-haired guy. There's an opportunity here to stop thinking about the family as an adversary and start thinking about the family as part of the interdisciplinary team. Family can actually help you improve your clinical outcomes pretty darn cost effective and pretty darn efficient too. So this was actually when I was in lieu of of serious academic pursuit, which is unfortunately not infrequent. I googled the image search for ICU visitation. And pretty interesting, this is a woman who had a blog and her dad was in the ICU. And she wanted all the family members to be able to keep track of when they could visit him. So she went ahead and posted it on the blog. Uh, I think most of us can look at that instinctively and think of, of people we love and think that we're not gonna be too happy with that. Now the truth is that most of the ICUs at the University of Maryland don't have that degree of restriction, but still do have restrictions, and that's actually consistent with most ICUs in this country have restrictions, and most have multiple restrictions. So certainly here we we have, in most of the ICUs that I'm aware of, have unlimited visitation, certainly in the MICU, uh, unlimited hours, um, but we have limitations on numbers and limitations on age. So you're gonna see combinations of these limitations, hours, age, number, and the vast majority of ICs in the United States. Right? So what we need to start doing, if we're gonna think about how we're going to ally ourselves with the families, is we actually need to ask them. They're the stakeholders. Right? And there's a movement to stop using the term visitation at all, which is if you love someone, you have a right to be with them. You have a right to have a family presence, not a visitor with your own daughter or a visitor with your mom or your spouse, your partner, right? You have a right to be there. It's a presence that should be there. So we should ask them. So what they'll tell you is, you need to support me as a decision maker, right? You need to give me control over the patient's care, and that's particularly interesting in light of the learned helplessness data. I need control. I need a sense that things are not outside my control. And the last one is, you need to create an ICU environment in which I feel supported. So what is it in the supportive environment? So we, we promulgated a whole set of beautiful new family-centered care guidelines. Uh, They are still under quarantine. I can't share them with you. Um, But basically one of the important things is to think about what you're doing uh, in terms of creating an environment that's conducive for the families. So what does that mean? Well, the first is there are some very good data that families want to meet in a dedicated meeting room and have a meeting room available. They want those open visitation policies. They welcome them. And then we also need to think about the fact that if we're going to welcome families to be present with their loved ones when they're critically ill, uh, is that they're gonna have some basic stuff they're gonna need to do. Okay? They're sleepy, they're gonna need a place to sleep. They're gonna need a place that they can sit. Right? They're gonna need a way to eat. There's a concept known as safeguarding. Families don't wanna leave their loved ones when they're critically ill. They may not wanna go down to the cafeteria. Is there a vending machine nearby? And they may need a place actually to do some things we don't think about. You know, For us, especially at a tertiary care center, they may be far from home. Maybe may been a while since they had a shower, wash their clothes. All those things are things we need to be thinking about. Right? So what, why are we not in this utopian world, right, as Dr. Scott pointed out, um, where we're not doing everything unlimited? Well, I'm gonna not too subtly ask you to consider some of those things we looked at with the history of pediatric visitation. Uh, but hey, it's bad for the patients. My patients are sick. They're on catecholamine infusions. I can't have family members rolling them up, they're going to get dysrhythmia, it's going to be bad. i got procedures to do, i got stuff to do. And then I live best as the patriarchal, the families also need to go home and get some sleep. I'm going to tell them. Okay. So we need to be thinking about those things because those are the same reasons that were given to parents to not visit their kids. Right? So there's an opportunity here for us to say, let's bring the families over to work with us. So this is a a concept by Judy Davidson, who I've had the pleasure of working with a lot. Um, This is a mid-level nursing theory called facilitated sense-making. And what is it? It's basically this idea that a lot of the disengagement and overwhelming emotion that the family members have can be attenuated by bringing them in and drawing them into the clinical process and engaging them at the bedside, okay? So what does that mean? Why don't you apply lip balm to your loved one? You can help out with mouth care. You wanna talk to them? Why don't you talk to them? tell them about what happened today, read them in the paper, you know, share some memories that they'll enjoy, redirect them, reorient them, right? can do passive range of motion, all of these things. And then this idea creates a new normal and helps the family integrate. Now I find this very pleasing intellectually, but then the part of me that's an epidemiologist says, that's really nice, but you're gonna have to show me some data. So there are data, and that's the really thing that I wanna point out here is that there are data to show that when we bring the family members in and we use them to work with us, we're gonna improve the care of our patients. So this is a study that was not in the ICU. This was in in ward patients. This is by Sharon Inway. It was the elder help study. And what was it? Basically, it took older patients who are at risk of developing delirium and randomized them to the standard of care or this elder help intervention, which was primarily driven by families in which there are a number of components. So what, was, what were the components? Okay, well, your grandma's here. Does your grandma wear glasses? Could you bring them in for us, please? Oh, your dad needs a hearing aid? Um, bring the hearing aid to make sure that he has them. You can, you can stay and you can stay and, and talk to your, your loved one and let them know what's going on and reorient them. Right? You can help with bedside care. You can give them a massage. Right? You can put on lip balm, all of those things. Now, if you think about this intervention, What did it actually cost at the bedside? Right? Zero. If you think about this intervention, who got elevations in their liver associated enzymes or developed acute kidney injury? Zero. And we know that delirium is a very bad actor in critical illness. And look, there are meaningful reductions in delirium with this intervention. What happened? brought the families on board. Afterwards, people looked and said, let's actually see if we can formally train We know that the families basically enacted the majority of the intervention. Let's see actually what the feasibility of formally training them in each intervention wing of the component, of the multi-component intervention. Guess what? Family members are really comfortable helping out with all those things. You can teach them. They wanna do it. They wanna help, right? And indeed, what's old is what's new again. So This is a study back from Heart and Lung Nursing Journal back in the 70s, CSICU, randomized patients to Standard post standard perioperative care, and then also having a family member there to help reorient them and reduce, you know, help reduce you know, disorientation. Right? I think that sentence might have reflected some disorientation. So, anyway, what happened here? Improvement in orientation appropriateness. This is before validated ICU measures, right? There's no CAM ICU in 1978. But what happened was, guess what? Patients probably did a lot better when they had their family members there in the CSICU helping out with perioperative care, reducing delirium. What did the intervention cost? Again, zero. Does having the family at the bedside lengthen the QT interval? No. Okay. Same thing here. This is an interesting experience at a University of Michigan, SICU. They instituted a really nice early mobilization protocol. like a lot of great protocols. After a while, it starts to peter out. And then they got the idea, you know what? We've got a lot of families around here. Why don't we have the families actually help out with mobilization, right? Because we know a couple of things. We know there's never enough interdisciplinary staff to help out with mobilization, right? We know also sometimes it's hard to motivate the patients themselves. Let's enlist the family in the endeavor. Guess what? Families are really happy to help out and it's gonna increase the amount of mobilization. We want mobilization, right? As, As a critical care epidemiologist and practitioner, I look at the Schweikert study and I know that early mobilization gonna reduce my length of stay, reduce my delirium and have a greater proportion of patients going home with no functional limitation, I want that. You mean I can have somebody do this for free to help me out? They're gonna be happier? The family member's gonna be happier? Yeah. That's what I want. So then the question is, okay, well, you know what? That's good, but what about the actual problems that we talked about earlier, which is I don't want lots of bad stuff happening from people trapezing in and out all the time, right? Because all this bad stuff's gonna happen because I need to be at the bedside. So this was an Italian study, right? Basically, it was Italian cardiac ICU. They alternated two-month epics back and forth, limited visitation, unlimited visitation. What happened? Nothing bad happened. If anything, right? This is a cardiac ICU. This is patients at high risk of dysrhythmia. Fewer cardiovascular complications. Did mortality go up? No. If anything, there might have been actually potentially been signal the other way. Right? Nothing bad happened. The only thing that happened was good, which was families showed up more, and patients may have had fewer cardiac events. Not a problem. Right? So again, what happens though? That's in Italy, right? Everyone's happy there, except when there's an earthquake and it's all good. And well, this, is, this is America, right? Bad stuff's going to happen here. So, so you know, we, we should we should not do that here. Right? So you know, this is the ICU at Intermountain, and this is led by Sam Brown. Um, Sam does amazing stuff uh, in terms of thinking and rethinking the ICU uh, in terms of a place for human beings and for loved ones. And what they said is, you know what? no more limitations. Anytime you want to show up, you show up. Many people you want to bring, you bring them. And whatever age you think is appropriate for your family and for your loved one, you do it. We're not going to tell you what to do. Right? So was it mayhem, cats living with dogs, right? fire pouring from the sky? No, it actually went pretty well. Right? No adverse events. Families liked it. Actually, the majority of, of the staff liked it. Right? So overall, nursing liked it. Now, there was one group of nurses that didn't like it, by the way. Right? So, nurses between 15 and 20 years' experience did not like it. That was the one dissatisfied group. Why? We saw that slide earlier. Why do we do it this way? This is the way we've always done it. Overall, everyone in the interdisciplinary team, family, nursing, liked it. It worked. Right? Now This is an interesting slide. I like this slide for a couple of reasons. My dad emailed me this this morning. Right? And so, I like it for you know, it's from my dad for a few reasons. First is the Wall Street Journal. I don't read that. I'm an academic. I have no reason to read it. The second is that my dad doesn't know how to link a PDF. So he just takes a picture of the article and sends it to me. So it's kind of endearing for me. Right? Everyone got a vision of my dad now? My 75-year-old dad sending me these pictures. But this is what's happening. Families are now aware of this. And right, this basically details a couple of ICUs, the community ICUs, including one in northern New Jersey, who basically went to unlimited visitation. Guess what, they're happy. And this again, this is the technology and the media is gonna drive this. The family members are now empowered and are realizing, you know, there's no reason that I shouldn't be with my loved one when he or she is sick. Right? So again, what do we need to do to help strengthen this alliance and help improve care? We need to be thinking about what the stakeholders want, not what we think is good, like we're gonna improve communication again, I know it's gonna be good this time. Now let's ask them, what do you guys think? So you ask them, this was in a nested study within the artsnet what do you guys want in terms of stakeholder communication? You ask the families, they say a couple things. The first is, I don't need a fancy family meeting all the time, right? You can also just meet with me more frequently and less formally. The other thing they say is, you know what, could you go over some stuff with us at the bedside? We, we'd really like to see, if you could show us some x-rays, you could show us some diagrams, or maybe just talk about numbers and prognosis at the bedside, that would be really good and that would help us a lot more than a lot of these big fancy meetings. And there is a reason and a time and a place for a good interdisciplinary meeting with all the members of the team involved, but at the same time they're saying, I need more frequent, less formal ones. So what, what satisfies is that? Well, guess what? If you round with families at the bedside, you can accomplish all of those goals right there and then, right? And again, this is is something that may be new or novel for us, right, round with the families. But in pediatrics, this has been the way it's been for a while, 15 years at least. And the majority of pediatric ICUs have just been rounding with their families. What happened in pediatric ICUs when they started rounding with families? Did rounds reach to a halt? Did every single family member in every ICU sue? Did everything go bad? No, actually it went just fine. Right? So what actually went more than just fine, family members liked it. You know, thank you. Thank you for letting us join you on rounds. You know, you actually create an environment that respects a full interdisciplinary team that respects everybody who's involved and has a stake in the patient's care. Nurses liked it. Everyone's involved. We're all communicating now. Right? And it doesn't affect medical education. Right? You may be more gentle the way you pimp your, uh, your residents and your interns, but you can still ask them questions. Right? So all of these things are there. And I think one thing anecdotally, and I shudder when I use that term, right, is that when, you, when you're with families and they watch your rounds, families have no idea just how detailed the decision making is in the ICU. For them to actually watch it, actually gives them a lot of appreciation for just how difficult our jobs are at the bedside. Right? More than that, you know, this is consistent with guidelines. You are within the standard of care. SECM ACCGM says, yeah, it's a good idea to run with families, right? All right. I think finally we need to be thinking also, as intensivists, is not just about getting our patients out of the ICU, but what happens when they leave the ICU? Because I think all of us went into critical care because we wanted to fix people, and fixing people means getting them home. Right? I think all of us can agree that fixing people does not mean I really would like to make sure that I have a good survival rate, but 100% of them go to skilled nursing facilities for the rest of their lives. Right? We don't want that. So we need to be thinking about how patients do at home to make sure they keep doing well. And one thing that's very clear looking at the data is we're getting really good at, at fixing people. That's amazing. That also means that we have more survivors. And this is actually data from Jack Washington at Michigan looking at Medicare beneficiaries who are survivors of severe sepsis. We've got over 200,000 you know, survivors, you know, older American Medicare beneficiaries, survivors of severe sepsis. Add everybody to that. There's a lot of people there who are survivors, they need help. Now This is a bewildering slide, I kind of dig it, because it's this idea of the progeric hypothesis. What does that mean? It means being in the hospital makes you really old really fast, because we mess people up a lot of really different ways. Right? So we need to be thinking about how we can work with families to help offset that. We know there's a post-intensive care syndrome, what does that mean? We know that nerves get messed up. These are sural nerve biopsies. Look at all these bombed out axons, right? Same thing, we know the muscles get messed up, right? Here's intact muscle fibers, here's a necrotic soup. That's what happens when you get septic and you're in prolonged mechanical ventilation. So we know that people are suffering a severe syndrome of new cognitive, psychological, and physical deficits after critical illness. We call it the post-intensive care syndrome, right? And of these components, you can see, there are a tremendous number, but among the physical, right, people are gonna need care, who gives it? Family members, right? We know that falls occur more frequently among severe sepsis survivors, right? And we know this idea of a post-intensive care syndrome doesn't stop with the patients. We talked about the fact that people develop PTSD before they even leave the ICU, it persists, and this is Judy Davidson who led this task force, right? And you can see here, all of these psychological barriers, all these psychological, uh, for all those comorbidities, they all persist long after discharge. So again, why do we need the families here? So the 1996 Giora, Dashing right? like first Clinton administration, right? Raves, it's all good, right? He's gonna say, okay, that's nice, that's nice. But I wanna get back to the uh, tracings now. Can I get back to the tracings? And I'm gonna tell him, listen, what we want here is i want to fix people in the icu i don't want them to go to a skilled care facility i want them to go home now there's two things when you have you go home from the icu you may have injury right you may have muscle injury you may have nerve injury what does that mean when you measure things under a objective environment i'm going to have you walk for six minutes i'm going to have you squeeze this hand grip and measure your strength. If you have an abnormality, that's a functional limitation. If you have an inability to do something at home, if it prevents you from doing something, that's a disability. So let's think about two patients that we send home from the ICU that are very similar. All right, let's say that they're both 70 year 70-year-old, right? 70 year olds, previously reasonably healthy with spouses, One goes home, got post-intensive care syndrome, got weakness, difficult to mobilize, spouse, worked with rehabilitation specialists, okay, here's what I need to do. I'm going to go ahead and get you a stool for the shower. I'm going to put grip bars in here. I'm going to put a riser on the toilet. Guess what? Spouse can still use the toilet, still use bathroom on her own. What happens the other other patient gets discharged? Gets home, you know, their loved one's overwhelmed. PTSD, depression, crying, I don't know what to do. You can't move up, you, you, can't, you can't get off the seat. I, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna, call, I'm gonna call you, you're gonna have to go back to the hospital and go to a nursing home. It's the same amount of functional limitation. Every functional limitation doesn't have to be a disability. The difference between a functional limitation and disability, one of the major determinants Right? Is that family, because if you think about what the family can do, that support is the determining factor. That's what we want. Here's an example from neurocritical care. Right? This is family support after a stroke. Right? So here are the severe strokes. Right? Solid lines. Circle, family. Right? Family support, square, no family support. Which one do you want? Right? Which one do you want for yourself, and which one do you want for your loved one? Which one do you want for your mom or dad? Right? This is the determinant. Right? The families are the crucial determinant of what's gonna happen when they leave the neuro ICU. So do you want your family to have, you want your, your patient that you worked so hard to take care of, you want that patient to have this trajectory or this trajectory? If you don't support the family member, if you don't support their family while they're in ICU, you're gonna get this trajectory. I don't think any of us signed up for that. Right? So we're working hard to try to advance the state of the science. The Society of Critical Care Medicine has been visionary and also very generous in its support Uh, and basically working with uh, a really great group of people have developed what's called the Thrive Initiative. So one of the issues here is there's a really complex world of survivorship out there. In the cancer world, we know a lot about survivorship. We know a lot about the culture of survivorship. We know a lot about the way survivors work. We know how survivors organize. Critical care, we don't have any of that. We don't know what the best way to care for survivors is in terms of utilizing biopsychosocial support and mechanisms and how to engage their families also to improve that care. So we're doing a couple of things. We want more healthcare providers to know about it. We wanna have families involved. We wanna improve awareness and improve the state of science. We wanna also give there a significant grant funding available to improve that care. Um, Part of that is also doing peer support. So peer support has been part of other disease states for a long time. Um, We want to do that here. Who's driving the patients to peer support? Their family members. You want that family member supported to get their loved one there or not? So again, the young Giora is gonna say, I want to be a pediatrician. Um, The somewhat heavier, less uh, maimed Giora of 2016 is gonna say, I want best care. I'm not gonna be dogmatic about how best care happens. Um, I want best care and because of that, you know, families need us. But the truth is, we need them. So, been lucky to work with a great group of people here at Maryland. Also, at great institutions, and also appreciate the support of SECm. Um, I do have a Twitter handle. Um, please follow me. I need more. I need more followers. I'm feeling lonely. Um, email me also. I look forward to continuing this conversation with any of you. And I think I left some time for questions. So. That's in the EHR that's been done in the with a lot of success. You think that in some way will change the trajectory and dynamics, the family being prized at things, or are they not going to be able to process that? What role do you think that will play in yeah. yeah, so that's a great question. The question is if there's an open note movement, especially with electronic medical record, and and what is the, the open note movement going to look like in the ICU? So I think one of the, the big things for us to consider is that the traditional dynamic uh, is over and you can can either celebrate that or mourn it, but it's irrelevant because either way, that old dynamic is over. Uh, And so there are really two choices. You can either engage or you can actually become adversarial. And and I remember the first time I got exposed to this concept when when I was an intern. And again, this is way back now. When I was an intern, when we used to round, we'd go around and around and every time we get to one of those sliding glass doors, someone would grab the door and go, thunk. We okay. did that every day. That's what you did. You closed the door. We're rounding. Okay. One day, John Flashing, who's my division chief, says, don't close the door. I'm like, don't. What do you mean, don't close the door? What do you mean, don't close the door? We close the door. We do that every morning. If you close the door, what do you saying? You have a secret? You just told the family you have a secret from them. What's the secret we have from them? I think it's the same thing with medical information. Now, so there's two parts of this. The first is, do we have a secret in the medical record from the families? No. I think think we're probably pretty good at not writing inflammatory things in a medical legal document. Um, If we're not good at that, we should probably tune up on our own, regardless of of, uh, openness of records. So I, I think in one sense, if we try to withhold the record, Um, that's gonna be a problem. On the other hand, there's a problem with regurgitating the entire record in an ICU (coughs) with the amount of documentation that there is, which is, um, and again, it can be available to the families if they want, but I think it's a truly overwhelming amount of data uh, and and divergent and difficult to interpret. I think the Solomonic solution may be um, some of the work that the Moore Foundation has, has scheduled, which is basically creating abbreviated data streams uh, to family members with tablets. So the family member can get information through the tablet, can prepare questions uh, for the team with the tablet, and feels engaged electronically, uh, and does it in a more streamlined fashion. So I think that, that it's too early to tell. I think to tell families they're not going to have access to the records is, is going to be pointless, because that, that's, that Pandora's box was open a long time ago. Uh, I think the question is how do you create it in an efficient way that engages families rather than overwhelms them. And I think that's probably with some sort of streamlined interface, um, which is what we're using to communicate with them every day. And I think some of that work, and Sam Brown has done that work really nicely, um, may be the way to go in terms of of PDFs and PDAs and communicators. Hi, what do you think about the use of medical jargon on rounds and how families interact with that and whether that contributes to them feeling overwhelmed or if they actually understand more than you think they would? Yeah, so that's a great question, which is, when we're rounding, um, we're obviously speaking in technical terms, what does that mean for the families? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So I think one of the interesting things about family-centered rounds is, is that we, we know that they're probably really good, um, but we don't really know what that means, how to actually introduce them and use them, right? Because there's a way to do everything in clinical medical. Way. We, know, we know that central venous catheters are good in the right patient, but there's a right way to put them in. Uh, you don't just come at someone with a triple lumen catheter and hope it ends up there. It should be the same way with family-centered rounds. <coughs> so, so one of the issues is it, it's very hard to know how to contextualize. I think in broad strokes, right, family members are able to get a sense of what's going on, um, and that often is very helpful. They have, a, they, they have different degrees of understanding, but I think even people of relatively low uh, educational status get a sense of things and, and this often you hear this often in family meetings which is i had a sense things were going pretty badly uh, i think the question is how do you introduce the rounds so that's actually a study we're doing right now at the university of toronto which is actually a sociological assessment of how do physicians actually introduce their family-centered rounds so what i do with family-centered rounds is i actually contextualize them and introduce them and again, there's no data for this. This is also, I'm gonna use the word again, in the world of empiricism. Um, but what I'll often do is I'll introduce myself, right? I'm Giora Nutz, I'm the attending ICU doctor. We're going to do rounds now. What that means is every morning we talk about every patient. We're gonna go over all the numbers. Um, we're gonna go over all the facts. Uh, we're gonna also, we like to make sure that we've got our thinking caps on. So we're gonna challenge each other to make sure that we're, we're on our toes and that we're, we're, we're thinking about everything really carefully. If you have any questions, please hold on to them. Make sure that we answer them at the end, and you joining us on rounds is not in place of meeting with you at another time. So that's my way of basically letting them know, you know, one of the things we worry about is, well, if we're gonna debate things on rounds, are they gonna interpret that as uncertainty? By saying, actually, the debate's a good thing, I'm telling you in advance we're gonna debate, um, makes that very comforting. And, and actually, it's, it's funny that a lot of families will actually look at that give and take, and actually begin to to appreciate it, again, that it's part of the experience, it's part of the reason that they're an academic center, <coughs> that people are really working hard and have, have a fund of knowledge uh, that they're able to express. Great. Oh, one question. Uh, yeah, one thing on the rounds that we often find is that particularly in places like the neuroICU that when we, in the uh, families uh, during rounds, that they tend to hang up on particular numbers, a particular vital signs or things that may not be necessarily representative of how a patient is doing but are often things that you know we kind of use to, to gauge things and and it seems like the families will obsess over those particular things and really zero in on it. Is there a way that you can think of to kind of prevent that from happening, mitigate the bad downstream effects that can potentially... Yeah, so it's a great question. And the question is basically, families often fixate on random data points that may or may not be important and may, not, may or may not be representative of trajectory. What do you do then? So I'm gonna first preface it by, there aren't really any data that I'm aware of here uh, for a, a effective, uh, effective you know, way to approach it. Anecdotally, I think the first thing is, if, they're at the, if they are at the bedside and they're listening and they're getting uh, fixated on numbers, there's actually a silver lining to that, which is they're engaged, right? You haven't lost them. They're engaged in the process. Where you get worried is when they've tuned out, right? The family that stops showing up is the one that worries me the most. Um, so I think one of the advantages of family-centered rounds is, yeah, the disadvantage is they're gonna get hung, they can potentially get hung up on different numbers. The question is if you didn't do family-centered rounds, would they not ask about numbers or look at the monitor and then get fixated anyway? I think the answer is they probably would. And then with rounds, they have the ability to understand that they're getting a large amount of information. Again, nothing up my sleeve. You guys joined us, we went over all the numbers, especially over if the patient's there for more than one day, they can get a sense that numbers jump up and down. So I, I think that the families, you're gonna explain numbers bounce up and down. We're gonna interpret each number with how it goes over a number of days. But I think the family-centered round format actually helps with them to know that there's lots of numbers and none of the, nothing's being withheld from them and they can keep seeing all the numbers. And again, I I don't think families who get hung up on numbers, if we didn't include them on rounds, they wouldn't be asking or looking on the monitor to get those numbers anyway. So So I think it's 1 o'clock, probably everyone is hungry, or actually ate, or wants to get off to whatever. So I'll say thanks very much, guys.